Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King. Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times, data with our birthday show episode of the Getting Over Professional Wrestling Podcast. No, the Silver King is not washed quite yet, but I am starting another year on this planet. Adam starting it by speaking to you as I break down everything that happened Wednesday night in NXT and AEW. Before we get to that, of course, you know what you need to do. And if you haven't done it already, at least do it for me for my birthday. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Yeah, go back to being a mark for me. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop that five-star rating and review for Getting Over. I greatly appreciate it. It helps the podcast every single time that you do it. I mean, you can only do it once, but for those of you who haven't, and again, I know there are so many of you who listen to the show because I see the listener numbers and I see the ratings and review numbers. There's a wide gap. Trust me, very, very wide gap. Please head on over, drop that five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Tell us what you like so much about it. I would greatly appreciate it. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And if you want to follow the Silver King directly, I don't only tweet wrestling on my personal account, sports, movies, beer, etc. cetera. Uh, you can follow me at Silverstein Adam. Now, before we hop into today's breakdown of NXT and AEW, I wanted to take a quick look at where we stand in the Wednesday night wars, the ratings war between these companies. Obviously, we do not spend much, if any, real time on this show talking about the ratings because it's far less important than the actual product that NXT and AEW are giving us on TV week to week. I care much more critically about what these shows are doing from a professional wrestling standpoint than caring about who won the demo or the total viewers week to week and really, you know, if AEW has won 40 weeks in a row or whatever the case might be. But we are in a unique time right now, and MJF will remind you. We're in a ratings war, ladies and gentlemen. But we're in a unique time right now where NXT has actually beaten AEW head-to-head in total viewers for three straight weeks. And then the three weeks prior to that was within 30,000 viewers each of those weeks. Um, And this comes weeks after AEW had basically a 100,000 viewer advantage. So clearly there's been a shift, 150, 200,000 people. um, But there's been a shift in, in momentum for NXT here which is nearly at its high mark for the calendar year. There's not much of a takeaway to this, but it is interesting that both companies loaded up their shows over the last two weeks, and despite doing that, only led to marginal increases in viewers, both for NXT and for AEW. And I'm really curious to see what happens this week. Obviously, we tape Thursday morning. The ratings come out late Thursday afternoon. But I am curious to see what happens with Fight for the Fallen going up head-to-head against an NXT show That only had two matches advertised for it. The main event was a women's championship match, but it wasn't that star-studded of one where you knew people were going to tune in. And they had a big match on TV as well, Keith Lee versus Dominic Dijakovic, but didn't promote it ahead of the show at all. So you didn't even know what was going to happen. So in terms of the critical comparison this week, which is what we're going to get into right now, there was not really much to separate the shows. AEW, I thought, in some ways had a stronger main event. NXT had a couple better segments in the middle of the show, and I felt there was more variety to the NXT show from top to bottom. I think NXT bothered me the least out of the two shows this week. So since it's my birthday, since I want to be as positive as I can be all day, let's go ahead and start on that note and roll into this breakdown with NXT. And I do want to start with where NXT started. I'm not going to go with the main event as the opening for our NXT breakdown, I want to bask in his glory a little bit. I want to bask in the glory that is NXT champion and North American champion, Keith Lee. That's the most action I've had all year. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic opening to the show. Not only recapping Keith Lee's NXT championship win, but providing greater context for just how many people are gunning for this two title holder now. Lee doubled down with a great emotional promo in the ring And I like that they kind of used the New Japan card. They pulled a New Japan card out of the deck and had the new champion create his own initial challenger right away. That said, Dominic Dijakovic being so smiley and almost wimpy a little bit, accepting what I felt like was a handout in a title match, it took me out of the coolness of the moment. I kind of thought, well, it would be cool for Dijak to come out there, shake his hand, 
you know, you know, maybe dap him up and then like start heading to the back and then have Keith Lee turn him around and say, actually, I called you out for a different reason. And then his eyes get wide at the opportunity and he takes it and he gets a little bit aggressive. He's like, I'm going to see you in the ring later tonight. Something like that, where it showed some gumption on Dijakovic's part. I'm never going to get his name right. I'm always going to stumble when I say it. It's stupid that it's longer. Just call him Dijak. Dijakovic is stupid. But um, the fact that he kind of just took it as like a gift and like shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, yeah, I guess I'll take a title match. It didn't make it feel that important. Um, So I don't really know what they did here. I I don't like that it was rushed also for the same show when they could have promoted it ahead for next week, knowing that Keith Lee and Dominic Dijakovic are great together in the ring. If they knew it was on tonight's show, which they obviously did because they booked it that way, then why not promote that Keith Lee has a major announcement and is going to have his first challenger for his titles on the show. Instead, they kind of just let it happen on TV. So I just, I thought that was a mistake the way they handled it. And we're going to get to more of that soon in a moment. As far as the match itself, the NXT and North American Championships being on the line, Lee defeating Dijakovic, you know, they put this match right at the 9 p.m. hour, which I thought was good scheduling. I was glad they did not take the scheduled main event slot over the women. The women had been advertised for it. They allowed it to stay in that spot. And that match deserved it between Io Shirai and Tegan Knox. We'll talk about that later. This was not the best of the Keith Lee Dominic Dijakovic matches in NXT because they had some bangers outside of NXT as well. But this was not the worst either. This was kind of right in the middle. I was glad that they toned down, for lack of a better term, the flippy shit and used their Haas strength a little bit more in this match than they did in the times that they fought previously. I also thought that allowed Keith Lee to get over better in this particular match because you want the new champion to look strong, which he did. The Cyclone kick from Dijakovic caught me off guard a little bit, but then after that, Lee quickly dispatched him, hit the Big Bang Catastrophe, which will never not make me laugh, the name of that move. Uh, Lee could not have eaten more offense in the match than he did, so it was nice that he didn't eat too much offense, he still looked strong as the double champion, someone that you want to believe is going to hold on to those titles for a very long period of time. So I did enjoy the match, I did enjoy the opening segment. I thought NXT largely was successful in their booking of Keith Lee. Again, Dominic Dijakovic didn't love what he did in the ring as much in terms of that opening promo segment. Now, after the match, you had Scarlett come down with the broken pieces of the hourglass. Um, That was a nice touch and a nice continuity from a few weeks ago backstage where Keith Lee broke uh, the hourglass. But it was another harbinger of doom. We're wondering, hey, who is going to be Keith Lee's challenger? It seems like there's all these people that have an opportunity or, or would at least have a a right to want to be that number one contender. But is it going to be carrying cross right off the bat? We don't know. I did think coming out of the match, the way they were kind of celebrating with each other, that might have been Dijakovic's farewell NXT match. But then we saw carrying cross attack him backstage. That changed things. That was pretty brutal in an awesome backstage segment. And now it looks like we're getting the blow off match for Dijakovic and NXT next week where he's going to go up against Karrion Cross, And we'll see whether Cross dispatches him quickly uh, and looks just boss and and, and uh, strong and dominant again, or whether it's a scenario where Dijakovic gets in a lot of offense because pr- presumably they're promoting him to the main roster. It looks like he's headed to Raw and they want him to look strong before he gets called up. So I am curious to see what happens there. But it was a strong main storyline woven throughout NXT, and I did appreciate the way they did that. Keith Lee looks great as the double champion, and my expectations are sky high for him in that role. I certainly hope they don't take the title off him too quickly. Uh, Up next, kind of after that opening segment, Damian Priest against Cameron Grimes. It was a really good match that showcased Priest, who continues to gain momentum over the last couple of months. The spinning heel kick and elevated reckoning finisher was a decisive finish to the match. And then calling out Keith Lee afterward kind of kept the theme of the opening segment going that... Lee's going to have to watch his back constantly because he has two titles and there's a lot of people gunning for him. Cameron Grimes, a lot of it to me has largely been a failure. I get the gimmick. I understand what they're doing with him. I don't think that's a gimmick that's going to work in 2020. If it does, it's never going to go past a mid-carder. And I just don't necessarily see that working on the main roster either. So I just feel like he and that character needs to develop further uh, in some ways, but him just manically laughing and wearing a top hat, you know, and being from South Carolina or North Carolina, I guess, actually is where he's from. 
it's just not really enough for me. I need something more to it. Uh, as far as the Thatch's Thatch Can vignette and segments, it was probably the best of the bunch. I think they did three so far to this point. It just doesn't feel like it's ultimately going to go anywhere. Timothy Thatcher's win over Denzel DeJournette. It was a squash, obviously meant to bring out a savior to kind of save DeJournette. But then the savior is only Lorcan, who Thatcher already beat. So that doesn't do anything for Lorcan, who Thatcher presumably is going to beat again. It doesn't do anything for Thatcher. And it's just kind of like... NXT doesn't know what to do with Thatcher at all. They don't know what to do in their mid-card right now, now that Keith Lee's holding both titles. So it's very rare that I give one of these for an NXT segment, but I'm going to. Block at zero! Did not like it. Indy Hartwell defeated Shotzi Blackheart. I thought it was a fine match that established some of Shotzi's moveset that we maybe have not been given a chance to see in some of the other matches that she's been in to this point. The Robert Stone and Aaliyah interference, it did make sense, and Hartwell winning with half of a boot. That was lackluster though. I would have preferred for her to hit that boot and then hit a finisher or do something a little bit more impactful where you're saying, oh wow, Indy Hartwell, she's legit. Like she's a badass. It felt like it was almost a happenstance finish that she happened to win that match. You know, not just because of the interference, but because the boot maybe caught Shotzi at the side of the chin or something like that. It looked like she kicked her in the chest and then just pinned her. That that doesn't work for me. I do have to give Mauro Ronaldo credit though. He had a great call after the match. All's well for Indy Hartwell, like that a lot. I do think Indy Hartwell, by the way, has a very high ceiling in NXT and WWE. She's good in the ring, has a great look. I believe she can cut a promo pretty well, but we need to present her a little bit better than we did on Wednesday night. Uh, Killian Dane, also in the show, enlisted Robert Stone's help to make a match with Dexter Loomis next week. Stone is operating on all freaking cylinders right now, folks. Robert Stone has it and... It's legitimately funny. I mean, the stuff with the tank and him screaming that he was dying had me laughing. The stuff with Killian Dane this week legitimately had me laughing. Uh, I'm interested to see how this plays out. You know, is Stone gonna wind up forming an all-female stable with Hartwell and Aaliyah and maybe one or two other women not being used? Is he potentially going to manage Killian Dane, whether for a short period of time or a long period of time? I don't know, but we've already discussed that removing Chelsea Green from him happened way too fast and clearly without a plan for Chelsea Green. So, you know, she is not now on TV and Robert Stone is succeeding without her, but in a more comedic, less serious role. So I am entertained by it, folks. And I do want to know what happens here. Dexter Loomis, on the other hand, he's lost a little bit of momentum from his high, which was about a month and a half ago. So I am also curious to see what happens in this match with Killian Dane. Is it another situation where the beast Killian Dane just loses to another big guy. It seems like that's going to be the case. I can't imagine Dexter Loomis losing, but we'll have to attack that next week when they have their match. My favorite segment of Wednesday night period across both shows was the Legato Del Fantasma vignette. They looked absolutely boss celebrating their win, almost gangster style or cartel style. It was, it, it just, the arrogance And the coolness emanated from that vignette. And you believed in everything that these guys were telling you. I loved that it switched briefly from English to Spanish. That Santos Escobar was there. Not putting over just himself as the champion. As defeating Drake Maverick and taking him out. But he was there to put over Raul Mendoza and Joe Quinn Wild. He gave them nicknames. He explained what each of them were about. And why they work so well as a trio. And of course, he laid out the mission as well to go from the sideshow to the main show. This vignette is the type of stuff that I love about wrestling. I tweeted something like this. If you said to me to give you an example of the character development and the gimmicks and stuff like that, that I enjoy in wrestling, this is a perfect example of it. You already kind of know who these guys are. And this segment just increased your knowledge of their purpose of their character, and long-term gave you an idea of what their goals were. Absolutely perfect. Santos Escobar is hitting on all cylinders. Legado del Fantasma is as well. And I just am so excited to see what these guys do. I know they're in the cruiserweight scene right now. This is not a cruiserweight group or, or, or trio, or maybe eventually one day faction. I would love to see these guys be legitimate. Mid-carters, at least at a minimum in NXT, 
Santos Escobar is a main eventer. You can definitely have him main event for the NXT Championship. I would love to see him them be the heir apparent to Undisputed Era in NXT, but I do think it would take one or two members to make that happen. I will say, though, the trio that they have right now, super cool and absolutely rocking it. Now for the main event of the show, the Women's Championship, Io Shirai, defending and defeating uh, Tegan Knox. Consistently good action in this match, and I thought it was deserving of the 24-minute main event window. The two cannonballs from Tegan Knox, one with Io Shirai in the corner in the Tree of Woe, were both really cool. And I like that both of them sold knee injuries in this match for different reasons. Knox, obviously, long-term, because she legitimately, I believe, tore her ACL like twice or one in each knee. I forgot the exact injury, but clearly hampered. And you could see it in the match because her speed was definitely limited from those real-life knee injuries, which did prevent this match and seemingly will prevent her in matches from reaching that top gear. That doesn't mean she's not good. Doesn't mean she won't be great. It's just speed-wise, she will be limited, most likely because of those knee injuries. But Io Shirai, on the other hand, is so fast and fluid that she almost made up for it completely in this match. The Molly go-round was hit perfectly by Tegan Knox. Shirai countering that um, moments later, I should say countering the shiniest wizard moments later with the palm strike before hitting that picture-perfect moonsault was a really good finish. It would have been ridiculous to change the title so quickly. They gave us a great send-off as well. After this match, you have, you know, Tegan Knox kind of dejected. You have Io Shirai celebrating after a hard-fought win. And then just blindsided out of nowhere, Dakota Kai kicks the hell out of Io Shirai's head. So it told us immediately, all right, Tegan Knox had her opportunity. Now Io Shirai clearly is going to be a face. And we have Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez, presumably, going after her as the new number one contenders. That's a match for me that will probably happen at the SummerSlam takeover or whatever equivalent they give us. So now they're setting that up long-term and Dakota Kai against Io Shirai is a hell of a women's match. The division NXT is strong. Very excited to see what they do with all of that going forward. And that's that for NXT. Good show top to bottom. Definitely a couple things that, you know, didn't work as well as they could, but I did think top to bottom, a really solid show. WWE does have the booking down. I was a little bit disappointed with the way they booked and promoted Great American Bash Night 2 last week. I thought they would lose the ratings war because of it. Ultimately, they still won in total viewers. So we will see what happens this week with a very lightly promoted NXT show going up against AEW Fight for the Fallen. And that is where we're going to transition right now. And we will start with the main event and the major storyline throughout this entire show, which was John Moxley defending the AEW Championship against... Brian Cage. I liked Moxley's promo early in the show. It set the stage nicely for the match, but I just wish they had done it in hour one as opposed to hour two to promote the title match. This was the exact same criticism that I gave NXT for Adam Cole and Keith Lee last week. They said, hey, we're going to have all this promotion for this match, but they saved it all basically for the second hour. The Taz promo should have been an hour one. The Moxley promo should have been an hour one. And then they should have just had that main event and probably given it three or four additional minutes by not needing all that stuff in hour two. The match started hot, though. Moxley going right after Cage from the bell, and I liked the aggressiveness outside the ring with the railing and the steel chair in a way that I hated it with Brody Lee. I guess with Cage, the aggressive angle was more believable. The fact that Moxley would need to go to those extremes and that he would try to go to those extremes but get usurped basically by Cage, especially with the um, the railing spot. You know, the fact that Moxley tried to do something, Cage ended up turning it around on him. So I found it to be much more believable them going outside and needing to go outside Moxley Cage than I did Moxley and Brody Lee. Uh, I also popped huge for Jericho's screaming armbar three times while Moxley had the Kimura lock on Cage. It was such a great callback, hysterical. Jericho on the mic in that second hour coming off the Orange Cassidy segment Top tier. I mean, I know you guys, I've said previously, I like him when he does commentary for real and I hate when he heals it up too much, but he kind of found a mix this week and I just thought it was perfect the way he did it. So kudos to him. We'll talk a lot more, trust me, about Chris Jericho in a moment. Uh, Moxley's aggressiveness throughout the match, it did fit the storyline and I loved him screaming and flipping off Taz at the end as to the finish with Taz throwing in the towel. I would have normally hated it, except AEW did something very smart here. They had Jim Ross sell it perfectly on commentary 
by explaining that Taz was protecting his investment and Cage had just come back from a five-month layoff for a torn bicep. They really hammered it home. They didn't just have Jim Ross talk about it. Excalibur chimed in. You had Jericho asking them to clarify what they meant. And they really took the time to hammer it home and make sure the viewer understood why that was the finish to the match, which is something that WWE consistently fails to do. Explain the actual story and the reasoning for what is happening on your television set. There are so many times that WWE has done a certain finish to the match that you sit there and you're like, oh, that was so stupid. But when we then discuss it on this podcast or when you listen to other people talk about it or you discuss it with your friends, you're like, you know what? In storyline, that actually makes a lot of sense because now that that happened, they can go to this and they can go to that and it doesn't hurt this person and it helps that other person. AEW doesn't make you wonder about things like that. They literally just hammered it home right in the moment. And because of that, I liked the finish. I appreciated the booking and why they did it. And I know that's going to surprise a lot of you, but AEW doesn't need doesn't like to do disqualifications. In fact, now that I think about it, I honestly don't know if they've even had one. But if you're not going to have DQs, then you're going to have to occasionally have finishes like this that move a story forward without someone taking a heavy loss. And that's what they did here. Now, you can make an argument that Cage, this legitimate monster of a man, this machine who has been billed as a machine, should have been able to power out of any submission that Moxley threw at him eventually. I guess the story was that Moxley wore Cage down so much with the Kimura and the multiple armbar attempts that he didn't have the power to power out of it in that spot. I think what would have been more effective would be for Cage to get out of that final armbar, which was almost like a disarmor. It was closer to Becky's Becky Lynch's finisher. But for him to get out of it and then drag his arm on the ground, on the canvas, and Moxley look at him and kind of say, hey, Cage, you need to stop. Like, we got to throw in the towel. And he screams, no, no, no. And Cage's favoring this arm so much that Moxley then locks it in again. Taz throws, throws in the towel. That's a little bit more selling, a little bit more storytelling. And then you don't need the commentary telling you as much why it's happening. Nevertheless, I did appreciate it. I thought it was good. I can understand why people didn't like it. And I respect you completely if you did not like that. But I, it made sense to me as a wrestling fan. Uh, Cage being incensed and not really holding, throwing in the towel against Taz, but rather just being pissed off at the outcome. That was also a nice, believable touch given the circumstances. And Darby Allen's return, it made plenty of storyline sense. That should break Cage away from Moxley being his number one contender, but it also kind of keeps him deserving of a title shot in the future when applicable, when appropriate, and it gives Allen something to do immediately. Or as you saw, it did look like Moxley and Allen were getting along, possibly a short-term tag team scenario where they team up and maybe Taz recruits someone else to work with Brian Cage. We also discussed previously, hey, the FTW title, like they brought it back, but the end of this match, either Moxley is going to win and it's irrelevant or Cage is going to win and it's irrelevant. Well, guess what? Based on this booking, they figured out a way to keep the FTW title relevant. I still don't know if long-term it's something that makes sense for AEW. I know it's not, quote-unquote, a real title, but I have a feeling it's going to get defended in a match against Darby Allen. If Cage wins, fine. If he loses it and now Darby Allen is the FTW champion, what are you doing? And how long is this going to last? So still, I like the FTW title historically. Not a fan of its current usage. The one criticism I will truly note here is that AEW for a long time did not have big guys. And now they finally have big guys. They have Lance Archer, Brody Lee, and Brian Cage. And all three of them lost their first match of significance. Yeah, I know Brian Cage won that ladder match, but he hardly that was hardly a match and he hardly did anything there. This was his first major match and he lost just like Archer did to Cody in his first major match and just like Brody Lee did to Moxley as well. So that I will give a small demerit, uh, but I did enjoy the match and I did enjoy the main event. Now the show opened with the TNT Championship match, Cody defending and retaining against Sonny Kiss. The pyro at this point, not just for Cody, but for AEW is so overdone that Sonny Kiss's entrance totally outshined Cody. It was an awesome cheerleader entrance. It is by far the best thing the Jacksonville Jaguars are gonna do all year. Um, and I just felt that it kind of put Sonny Kiss over as this unique superstar who you're really curious to see what this person is going to do in the match. Cody 
took a lot more offense than I expected, and clearly worked hard to get Sonny Kiss over. So I do respect him for that. I really liked the officiating in this match. Shockingly, in AEW, I liked Aubrey Edwards not counting the pin with Cody's legs under the ropes. There was more officiating probably in that match than we've seen in any tag team match in AEW. They were clearly telling a frustration type of story with Cody feigning using his weight belt, taking off the turnbuckle cover. The match probably went three minutes too long and a bit too far in the direction of Sonny Kiss getting in that much offense, but still, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, I thought this was better as a crossover match, though, at the 9 p.m. hour, as opposed to the opener, which I told you on Tuesday's show should have been FTR and the Lucha Bros, and I totally stand by that. As far as the tease with Tully Blanchard watching, there is a DM slide that comes later where we'll talk about it. We'll see if they actually do this Four Horsemen thing or if it's a complete swerve. But the idea that Tully may get into Cody's head perhaps and maybe even push out Arn is something that would be interesting in a potential development of a Four Horsemen faction. Again, the question is, do we really want that in 2020? Maybe. That's my answer, maybe. I don't know that I want it, but I might. We'll find out. We'll see what AEW does with it. FTR defeated the Lucha Bros. As I said, this should have been the opening match. Uh, Just a pure classic wrestling match that really showed that you can still have a great tag team match where rules are abided by. The the officiating was very good in this match. They made them tag. It made a lot of sense that they kept it almost completely by the book, which is not what they did later in the show. We will certainly talk about that. The Flying Tope Tornado DDT by Cash Wheeler was great. And the Escalera Splash by Phoenix um, was just awesome on top of it as well. AEW obviously does shy away from DQ finishes, like I mentioned earlier. But I know people liked the finish here, removing Phoenix's mask. Felt kind of cheap to me. Felt um, like a letdown when we're in a match as good as this could have been. There were also a number of botches, which are going to happen, especially when you're live. Um, The botch with the Lucha Bros just, you know the seesaw, splash, whatever that was, kind of hurt to see that right in the middle of the match when you know they're so much better than that. This match just never really hit a second gear for me. It stayed in first gear. It was a really good first gear match, but it never really escalated. And we never got that finish that you really could get from FTR and Lucha Bros that they are capable of doing. So there was a little bit of disappointment for me here, um, but I did appreciate that we got to see them wrestle for the first time. And that was pretty cool. As I said last week, Pouring beer, in this case, over a straight edge guy's head is just as bad to me as doing the Jeff Hardy angle. For those of you who disagree with such things, I don't particularly find anything wrong with either of them. But if you didn't like the Jeff Hardy stuff, then if you're liking this, then you're just being hypocritical to me. I know there are slight differences when person actually has the issue or has an issue. In this case, Hangman Page is a storyline. Kenny, he just chooses not to drink. That's life choice that he makes. But it's still the use of alcohol to fuel something in this regard. And it is ultimately still fake. It is still kayfabe. So if you're going to kind of hate on one, then you really need to be an equal opportunity hater in this regard. Um, I do like, though, getting away from that, the fact that FTR is using alcohol to get between Omega and Hangman Page. It's a smart, intriguing storyline that I am excited to see. And it kind of makes you wonder, Cody, Hangman Page... FTR, if we see a Four Horsemen, is that going to be the Four Horsemen we see? So that is interesting. Moving into Chris Jericho, the Demo God. Before we even talk about this segment, which I sure as hell am going to talk about, I want you, my dear listener, to hear the segment for yourselves again. It's Thursday. It's no longer Wednesday night, no longer in the middle of the show. I just want you to hear the audio. I also won the ratings war as well, just like I do every single week. Let me show you and explain to you how uh, ratings work, little kids. Of course, it's great to have the overall winning viewers, but the most important thing is the 18 to 49 demographic, the demo. And Le Champion has never, ever been beaten in that demo. I'm the king of the ratings, man. I'm Le Champion of the demo. I am the demo god. 
Okay, so whether you believe Jericho talking about the ratings in the demo is funny or cool or whatever, and by the way, this is all a large Twitter and internet troll job, just to clarify, based on comments that Jericho made after AEW lost total viewers to NXT the last couple of weeks, but won the demo. Um, Whatever you think the subject matter of Jericho doing this, whether you think it's funny, cool, whatever the case, I hope everyone can admit, and you know, long-term listeners of this show, this is not a word I use often, and it is a word I never use, ever, ever use about Chris Jericho. But this promo and talking about ratings and demos in the middle of a show in this manner was completely cringe. It just was. This was not good. It didn't make Jericho look good. I know it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek for people that have criticized the way he tweets and talks about it. But, man, do that in interviews. Don't do that in the middle of a segment. You're ma- that, was the, that was the juice, for lack of a better term. That was the meat of this entire promo segment that Jericho was going to come out and do. I did chuckle at Jericho calling himself the demo god. It's funny. Definitely funny. But the rest of it, to me, it was just eye-roll-inducing which is something I would never, ever say about Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho has it. But this. Oh, what a little freak. What a weirdo. It was just not good. And I said this a couple of weeks ago when AEW spent three moments on a single broadcast trying to troll WWE and NXT. Clearly they are getting shook in some way by the NXT ratings, and you all know there ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. In terms of the rest of the segment, I'm not going to go crazy about the orange juice, Nickelodeon slime type of stunt, but it was not something I really expect or want out of AEW. I will say that Ortiz's comedy slip and slide uh, in the OJ, that popped me. I thought he saved the entire segment. He was hysterical. I was manically laughing at the way Ortiz sold the orange juice. And Jericho being covered in the OJ and being all sticky and fired up on commentary. I mentioned it earlier. That was awesome too. So everything after the orange juice fell was good. Everything before the orange juice fell, kind of including the orange juice falling, was pretty bad. And it is not something I liked. And I think AEW is in this weird spot right now. And we're going to talk about it actually here. And you know what? Let me get to it and we'll talk about it on the back end. We'll move on to the Elite versus the Jurassic Express. Another no-rules tag team match here that had good, exciting action throughout, considering the talent of all six men, but for me, ultimately, just fell flat, and for me, is not what I want out of AEW. Basically, they were trying to replay the Canadian Destroyer move from last week. It was unnecessary. It was well-spotted, and it it did work. It, It succeeded, but they just didn't need to do it again. Omega then nearly takes a fall from Marco's stunt. That's stupid. And the fact that he had so much trouble with a guy his size was ridiculous. You're talking about the IWGP champion, Kenny Omega, one of the greatest wrestlers who has ever lived. And you're not talking about someone like Orange Cassidy. You're talking about someone like Marco Stunt. And zero offense to Marco Stunt, who has totally won me over in the, let's say, 10 months that AEW has existed. 100% won me over. Like him. I think he's kind of funny on the mic. Really good in the ring, way beyond my expectations. But I am not going to accept Kenny Omega struggling with him in the ring. That is not a suspension of disbelief that I want to do, a suspension of belief, really, that I want to do, uh, regardless of his skill level. I was glad that Omega took that, turned it around immediately after, and then decimated him with the knee, with the one-winged angel, and just ended the match right after that. So that was good to me. Uh, Omega also losing his cool paid off the frustration from earlier with FTR and showed that he's on an edge right now. And you're kind of wondering what's going to happen with Kenny Omega. I definitely do not want a Kenny Omega heel turn. So hopefully this is a tease more than anything. But I did like that they were doing a little bit of character development there with Kenny Omega. But when you take these two segments together, it starts to feel to me like AEW is straying a bit a bit more than they even have been from what they promised us, which they told us that AEW and Dynamite was going to be a sport-centric feel, 
that you were going to get the highest quality matches week to week. And it was going to, it was going to be wrestling taken more seriously for fans who want serious wrestling. I mean, you guys know the expectation was NJPW, but mixed in with American wrestling on an American TV broadcast. But that is not what they're giving us. And I'm totally okay with them not giving us that. Maybe through research and demographics and whatever the case, they figured out they need to do something a little bit more like this. But if I have said this once, I have said it a thousand times or probably have only said it 12 times or so, maybe a dozen. But AEW is more of an alternate product to WWE, just a different version, a different brand, a WCW almost, than it is something like NXT or New Japan Pro Wrestling. I start to find that NXT is way closer to New Japan than AEW is. And I'm not saying that AEW needs to be New Japan, but my expectations, considering the talent level and the ability to have knock them down, drag them out matches that AEW has, my expectation was we would get a couple of those every single episode and then on the pay-per-views, they would be absolutely incredible. And AEW has given us some incredible matches. The tag team match, the elite tag team match, Hangman Page and Omega versus the Young Bucks. What a freaking great match, okay? Kenny Omega's had a couple decent matches, above decent, really good matches in AEW as well. But when you're getting into this Wednesday night product and you're getting what they're giving us and some of the stuff that they do on Dark as well, which granted, I'm not a frequent watcher, it really feels to me like AEW is losing the focus of what fans were excited about when they launched. And look, if the ratings stay steady and business is good, then they don't need to change a damn thing. But I'm just telling you what my expectation was versus the reality of what AEW is. It is way more like WCW. And I'm not saying the bad part of WCW. I'm just saying WCW, WCW. It's way more like that than I ever expected that it would be. And I don't know what the influence of that is, but there are some disappointments for me in that regard. I want to see Kenny Omega have these incredible freaking matches. I want to see John Moxley frequently defend that title in in awesome affairs. And I know that there has been some hiccups to his title reign. I'm not really trying to trash him or anything. Um, I don't want to see like gallons of pyro being used across 18 different wrestlers over the entire show. It is a little bit frustrating to me. That said, I still like the product. I still watch it every week. I get excited when Dynamite is on, but they did have a chance to grab me and say, hey, we're, we are going to make you like our product more than NXT and more than WWE. They have not done that yet. And I am curious to see what happens as things continue into year two for them. And as really the pandemic eventually one day, hopefully ends and they get fans back and start doing live shows again. So we'll see what happens there. Finishing up with AEW, the Nightmare Sisters defeated a couple jobbers. Honestly, I didn't even catch the names of the women they fought against. There's no women's tag team division, so I don't know the point of having this match. feels like they just didn't have another women's match that they could have on the show. So they just threw this on. Um, I would have rather had them not do it. And then you had uh, Vicky Guerrero debuting as Nyla Rose's manager. I said this last week, Nyla Rose does not and did not need a manager. It was insanely predictable that it was going to be Vicky Guerrero. And I wish I could take credit for it, but everyone thought it was going to be Vicky Guerrero. So it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't necessarily good. And ultimately, I feel like this is just a way for them to shoehorn Vicky Guerrero on TV. I'm not excited about it. I like her. I think she's really good in her role. I just don't need her screaming, excuse me. We had that era of wrestling. I don't need it back. As simple as that. Uh, Last but not least here, and I think you guys are going to feel like I'm being too critical on AEW after what I just said about kind of the product as a whole, but the AEW talent ringside was all forced to wear masks, right? Uh, Except MJF and Wardlow, apparently, for some reason. I don't know why. But then you have the friends and family section, the fans, whatever you want to call them, that didn't have to wear masks in the crowd. These are regular people. Uh, We heard that AEW was testing some of them, but not testing other, other of them, Um some was, were wearing them and then took them off. There were people drinking beer out there. So maybe the concessions were open or they were allowed to bring coolers in and remove their masks. I don't know. I know it's an open air facility, but this is such a bad look for AEW. And it's a bad look with wrestling taking place in Florida. Plus you had John Moxley and Orange Cassidy who came through the crowd at different points in the show. I feel like AEW kind of has this cavalier attitude that just because no one has popped positive that we know of, by the way, 
that they can get away with doing antibody tests and having limited fans. But their test procedures, which by the way, were the best when WWE was doing nothing. I think they were just the best in comparison to WWE. But now they're dog shit compared to what WWE is doing, which is not having friends or family or any of that, forcing everyone to wear masks with a fine being instituted if they don't, and doing the legitimate viral testing, the nasal swabs to make sure that people are clean before they get into the facility. So AEW simply just needs to do a better job protecting the safety of their performers, period. That's it. I did not like what I saw from a coronavirus standpoint on Wednesday night. Now we are done breaking down NXT and AEW, but I do have a couple DM slides that touch on those brands as well. So let's jump into them before we get out of here today. Did not mean to play that entire sound, but that's okay. Atish Tawari at Atish911. Hey Adam, do you think they're in a booking limbo, there being NXT, with Gargano, Ballard, Champa, and even Adam Cole, with most of them not being involved in a major feud since the last pay-per-view? How do you think that could be resolved, especially now with Lee holding on to both titles? This is a really good question. Adam Cole, I think, I hope, is done in NXT. I really hope that after SummerSlam, he debuts on either SmackDown or Raw. Champa is an interesting situation because he got his ass kicked by Karrion Cross. So how exactly do you make a return? And when you make a return, how is it impactful? And how do you make that return, perhaps not going after either of the, the titles? I don't have the answer for that right now. Gargano and Balor, I think, are both legitimate challengers to the NXT title and the North American Championship. I think before we question what NXT is going to do with them, you have to question what they're going to do with the championships. Because right now, Keith Lee is taking up two divisions. I don't see a scenario where he defends the titles individually. I think it would only be at once. So I do think, ultimately, that NXT is going to have to strip him of the North American Championship. I don't know what else they could do. I think you strip him of the championship, you hold either a 16-man tournament, which is my ideal is to go 16, not do eight. So that way it stretches multiple weeks and you get more excited about it. I would hold the 16-man tournament. I would put both of those guys in it. Uh, I'd have one of them get eliminated probably early by fluke or just because of a tough matchup. And then you can probably turn that person into a challenger for Keith Lee down the line. In the meantime, you do have Dexter Loomis out there. You do have Damian Priest. You have... Carrying Cross, you have other guys who can challenge Keith Lee, Atish, but you are right. They are in a bit of a quandary right now, and I'm not exactly sure how they're going to get out of it with the titles. But I do think first they do have to address, is Keith Lee going to be double champion for an extended period of time, or are they going to do something to separate those two titles? And I think they need to do something to separate those titles. The Jeremy Smith Show at Jeremy Smith Show, he writes him, uh, two straight weeks we've seen the FTR hangman combo on screen. The more I see it, the more it underscores that the right horseman reboot, clearly they're heading in that direction, he says, is Cody Page and FTR. You have your pseudo flamboyant frontman of Brainbusters-esque tag team and the cowboy rebel that is reminiscent of Barry Windham. And it seems the perfect way to ignite all of that is to have Elite versus Page FTR with Cody intervening against the Elite, whom he has done nothing with in a long time. That's true. Cody has been totally removed from the Elite as of late. He's with this nightmare family thing, which sucks. QT Marshall, Dustin Rhodes, Allie, Brandy, and Cody. It's not even really a group. I mean, it's just, it's bad. So you're right about that. Look, I do think ultimately they're going in the four horsemen direction. Um, You know, I don't know that I love it. I kind of wish they would do something four horsemen-esque, but have their own name, not use the four horsemen symbol. But if they are going to go in that direction, that is the right four to go with. You are 100% correct. So if they go in that in that direction, I would be interested to see it. And we will see long-term how it works. But, you know, AEW, they keep developing these mini groups slash stables. And I know that, you know, I forgot what it was. Uh, Lucha Triangle, Death Triangle with Pac. I know Pac can't get there, so that's not being utilized right now. But a lot of these groups just... They're not really working and they're not really exciting. Inner Circle is really good, no question. Dark Order, I don't like, but it's staying together. They have something. Maybe one day it'll develop into something. Maybe Brody Lee will take the TNT title or something like that. Maybe they'll take the tag titles at the same time. I don't know exactly. But they tried this and they've been trying it and it's just not as successful in AEW 
as it was or as it has been, I should say, in New Japan Pro Wrestling or as it was previously in WWF and WCW. So we'll see what develops. Four Horsemen, you know, we've talked about it a bunch on this show. We've talked about it previously. I think I'm in a wait and see mode now. If they do it, great. We'll talk about it. I kind of want to stop speculating because it just seems like they're so blatant with it that I almost hope it's a swerve. Uh, Nick Flynn at nflynn underscore 17. I know Wednesdays are for AEW and NXT, but I wanted to know your thoughts on the NGA Cup, the New Japan Cup, and Dominion uh, coming out of there, all the storylines, primarily the rise of evil and his new alignment with Bullet Club. I won't spend too much time on it because I know most of you didn't really want me to talk NJPW heavy on our shows, uh, despite I think a good amount of you watch it, but you seem to really like the WWE format and the NXT AEW format with us doing separate New Japan shows when they matter. So for Dominion, for a G1, and perhaps obviously for Wrestle Kingdom as well. Uh, Here are my very, very quick thoughts, 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, I hated it, straight up. Uh, I think Gato maybe has jumped the shark a little bit. Not a term I throw around very much. And look, if you're a Tetsuya Naito fan, which I certainly am, um, from a fan standpoint, he just got the titles. He only had one defense and now he's lost them. And I waited, what? two or three years for him to get that opportunity. That's crap. Evil kind of seems that like he was slingshotted into this position that they maybe had it planned for someone else maybe later in the year. Now Evil is champion and he's in the Bullet Club. And the Bullet Club, by the way, sucks now. Um, So I don't love that either. I, I just don't like it. I didn't like their match. I didn't like the finals of, I believe it was Evil versus Okada in the New Japan Cup. I didn't think that match was anything special. So match quality, I think, in New Japan is down. Uh, Storylines, I think, are down. And I don't know. I think I may be falling out of love with New Japan. The New Japan I love, look, honestly, it had Kenny Omega, Kazushka Okada, Tetsuya Naito, all those guys on top. You got little sprinkles of, obviously, Jericho and Moxley, but I didn't even need them at all. Tanahashi and Ibushi and all those guys. And right now, everyone's kind of relegated to second tier. Tanahashi and Ibushi are the tag team champions seemingly out of convenience because they don't really have any tag teams that work right now in that division. NJPW right now feels like it's in a lull. So look, the G1, we presume, is coming up soon and they're going to have Wrestle Kingdom in January and that's their season. The summer into you know the winter is really NJPW's best time of year. So they have every chance to win me back. I'm not going to stop watching. I will watch the G1, but you know what? I was watching every episode of G1 start to finish last July. I don't know that I'm going to do that this time. I think I'll probably seek out the best matches, probably get the results spoiled for me, uh, and watch those individual matches, and then watch the semifinals and the finals in totality live like I normally do. So yeah, Silver King may be falling out of love a little bit with NJPW, but we will find out uh, going forward. Now, what is up next, both in the world of wrestling and this podcast? Lots of stuff to tell you about. First, in wrestling, we have the go-home show for WWE Extreme Rules, the go-home SmackDown episode, I should say, ahead of the horror show at WWE Extreme Rules. And that is gonna be a horror show. (laughs) How do you like that, huh? Yeah, still hate the name, but hopefully SmackDown's good. And the only match really advertised for SmackDown is AJ Styles defending the Intercontinental Championship against Matt Riddle. I wish that this would main event this show. I don't expect that it's going to. I have a feeling they're going to go with a Wyatt Strowman segment to promote their Wyatt Swamp fight. But if they don't, man, AJ Styles, Matt Riddle, I need 30 minutes. A minimum 25. I need the the commercials that show the action going on, the picture in picture. I don't want to miss a second of this. This is a dream match for me. Very, very excited. I have no expectation that Riddle's going to win the title. I completely expect the end of the match will have Baron Corbin interfering and leave us all dejected. But you know what? I expected that for multiple um, title matches that we've seen across multiple WWE brands, and all of them have had legitimate finishes recently. So even if it happens, I think I will accept that. That's the entire go-home preview for SmackDown, uh, because like I said, there's not much else advertised. Now, that said, I did tell you guys previously that the 50th episode of this podcast would be our WWE Extreme Rules instant analysis. Well, guess what? I lied because Friday morning, we will have a special interview episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, which will be our 50th anniversary episode. Right now, I only have one interview in the can. I was supposed to get 
two or three, we will find out if any of those others develop. If they don't, or even if they do, I'm going to make Friday show this week. Like I said, I think it's only the second time we've done a special episode in this regard. I'm going to make it a last minute WWE Extreme Rules preview show. So I'm not going to talk anything about Extreme Rules that you guys don't ask me. If you are listening to this podcast between Thursday morning and Friday morning and have any questions or topics that you want me to address further or address again about the horror show at WWE Extreme Rules, hit us up on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Ask those questions, slide in those DMs. If you want to email us, if you prefer email, email us gettingoverpod at gmail.com and I will do a special sliding in the DMs WWE Extreme Rules Preview Edition on that Friday show. And of course, you do need to tune in Sunday night after Extreme Rules is off the air for what will now be the 51st episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast Instant Analysis of WWE Extreme Rules. Of course, you can follow the Silver King on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. I tweet every episode, but it would be better if you follow us at Getting Overcast, where we tweet every episode and tweet about wrestling all week long. And by the way, don't just follow us, retweet us, favorite the tweets, like them, get people seeing the show and getting us new listeners. Uh, the, the numbers have grown, not substantially, but but trending in the right direction week to week. I hope that things keep going in that direction. And I need your help with your five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And of course, your tweets, retweets, and telling your friends about your favorite show to make that happen. Okay, that's it, folks. We've broken down everything that happened on NXT and AEW, giving you a preview of what's to come. It's time for the Silver King to say goodbye, folks. But before I do, you know there's someone else that has a couple words for you. Elizabeth, come on out here, We got something going that's really big. Yeah. Look in the video scope right now and tell them about Macho Madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah, we into the twilight zone. Yeah, and how Kogan's got no chance, does he? Chance against the Macho Man, right? Yeah. Okay. And one of the greatest wrestler, past, present, and future that ever lived. Okay, now say goodbye. Goodbye. Say goodbye. Okay, we'll get out of here. That's a rock, Randy. Yeah, but it is rough. Yeah, wrestling is a rough sport. And I'm the roughest one in the sport. I am the number one wrestler in the world today. Don't I thank you, Randy Savage. Thank you all for listening. Tune in Friday and Sunday. Bye for now.